Welcome to the Counselors of Real Estate's Top 10 in 20 podcast series. In these 20-minute episodes, we'll discuss one of the prevailing top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier, President and Founder of Retech Advisors in Falls Church, Virginia, and Chair of the Counselors of Real Estate's External Affairs Committee that develops the annual Top 10 list. Counselors of real estate are trusted advisors solving the world's most complex real estate challenges. Experienced, innovative, and credentialed problem solvers, counselors practice in 20 countries and offer expertise in more than 50 real estate disciplines across all asset classes. Each has earned the prestigious CRE designation. Our guest for this episode is George Ballone, CRE president and broker of record of Hoboken Brownstone Company. George has extensive experience in urban housing through a socially conscious approach to development and has built mid-rise and high-rise condominiums as well as more than a thousand affordable housing units throughout most of New Jersey's urban markets. George authored the narrative supporting our number five issue on affordable housing for this year's compilation of the top 10 issues affecting real estate. COVID-19 was the number one issue and resonates throughout each of the other nine. Welcome, George. Thank you, Deb. Good to be here. George, can you give us some context for the tremendous need for affordable housing in America? Sure. So first of all, big picture. Um, I looked up the latest survey from the American Housing Survey, quarter three of 2019, and there's 140 million housing units in the United States right now. So single-fam, owner-occupied, 70 million. Multi-fam, owner-occupied, like condos and townhouses, 10 million. So there's 80 million out of the 140 million owner-occupied. Balance of 43 million is uh, rentals. Uh, of those, single-fam rentals are 15 million. Multi-fam rentals are 25 mil, 28 million. Uh, so altogether, uh, occupied by renters and by owners, 123 million. There's vacant, 17 million vacant units, which is an astounding number to me. And that rounds you off to the total of 140 million housing units. Now, in terms of affordable, the, um, the study that I read there was by the National Low-Income Housing Institute, and they say there's a shortage of 7.2 million low-income housing units, and they break them down into two categories, extremely low-income and severely cost-burdened. So extremely low-income means that their income is the greater of the poverty line guideline in their region, in their area of the country, or uh, 30% of area median income. So two different metrics and greater of those two category, whatever you fall into in terms of the greater of those two, that characterizes you as extremely low income. And they, and they generally spend about 30% of their income on housing. Severely cost burden spends over 50% on their housing costs. So I don't know how you can spend 50% of your income on housing and still have money left for food and medicine and things like that. It's, it's amazing that they can even survive. So the, um, the Low Income Housing Association says there's a shortage of 7.2 million homes. 29% would be needed by the extremely low income folks. That would be about 2.1 million homes. And the severely cost burden, the much larger category, 71% of the total, would need another 5 million homes to find their housing. Um, and that doesn't include homeless 
which is they, they've estimated there's another a little more than a little less than 600,000 homeless uh, in the United States, and they don't count them because they don't have an address. So it's very difficult to know for sure how many there are. So that's an estimate. Um, as you would expect, this is disproportionately distributed among women, women of color, and children. So um, it, it's a serious situation, and you know you can see what's going on in a lot of our urban areas right now with demonstrations and that, that are turning into just outright riots and anarchy. I think we are um, reaching a boiling point. And um, that may be good because sometimes things happen when they have to happen. And uh, I hope that's the result of it all. And, and, and it's not just, you know, continuing chaos because we certainly have enough of that in all of our lives with COVID going on right now and the economic impacts uh, of that. We hear a lot about this concept of not in my backyard or NIMBYism, and especially related to affordable housing. But what does that really mean? Well, it basically means that everybody likes the idea of making sure that everybody's got a decent home. But if you're low income or if you're people of color, we don't want that in our neighborhood. You know, that's like not for us. It's, it's real. I mean, it's just basically racism that is disguised a bit as uh, you know, you ought to have the, uh, if you live in a town, you ought to have the right to decide how your town looks and what kind of housing stock are going to be built in your house. Obviously, if you have a, a million dollar home, you don't want to have a, you know, $100,000 two family house right next door to you. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that you can't find some place in town where you can build housing for other income level people. So it's, it's, it's this amazing dichotomy that, you know, if you ask almost 100% of people, if you ask them, do we need more affordable housing in the United States? They'd all say yes. And then they say, well, how about in like a portion of your town? Then they're like, well, our town isn't really set up for that and we don't have that kind of play and blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's really, um, it's a tough nut to crack. It's a very tough nut to crack. I learned in reading your article that home rule the concept of home rule is often one of the impediments as well to getting affordable housing sort of passed through the approvals, through the approval process. Can you talk a little bit about what is home rule and how that's uh, disadvantaging uh, yeah. the development of affordable housing? Home rule in New Jersey, and, and I'm sure it's the other states that treat the zoning process at the local level, it, it simply means that all zoning, all zoning zoning decisions are made within the borders of the town or a township or a city it's all zoning decisions are made inside that town so really you're not getting a regional approach or a statewide approach which is affordable housing i think it's a national crisis but certainly i would i would think it would be uh realistic to tackle it at the state level and then the state could decide to break it up in regions like in new jersey we have 21 counties you could approach it at the county level uh, and, and start to make some ground rules where developers like myself could actually get zoning approvals to build this stuff. So it's basically your planning board and your zoning board. Every single municipality in New Jersey has one of each and they, they control all zoning decisions in, within that municipality. Planning boards handle conforming applications where you're following the existing zoning ordinance and all you're doing is proving compliance and the zoning boards are for use changes or significant deviations uh, to what the uh, ordinance permits currently. 
Do you think this is isolated to New Jersey? It sounds like it's indicative of a larger problem across the U.S. What What are some of the 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 symptoms or the outcomes due to this approach of having a home rule where an individual locality is determining something that's probably the needs of a greater region? Yeah, the symptoms are pretty clear. Um, you don't have zoning that would permit affordable housing. You know, you've got single, you know, one, minimum lot sizes of five acres or 10 acres. You can't build affordable housing, one unit to the five or 10 acre lot, that's impossible. And so you look basically to the standards, uh, minimum lot size, that says the whole thing right there. And I think there, there are a lot of, um, in addition to sort of political and financing implications of what you're talking about, there's a lot of other outcomes um, that, that are tying up good projects that people are trying to um, get past for approvals. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the implications of, of the holdups and the, you know, the lost time and jobs and things of that nature and litigation, I would assume, as well? Yeah. Well, in, in the uh, municipal land use law, which governs all land use in New Jersey, anybody within a town can appeal a zoning decision. Now, if it's a planning board decision where you're there just to prove you, uh, you comply with the existing ordinance, you typically will win that suit in court because the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, the person suing you. They have to, they have to prove that you don't meet the zoning code standards. And that's a tough burden because, you know, if you know what you're doing and you hire the right people, the right architects, the right engineers, the right planners, the right lawyers, they scrub those ordinances down. They make sure that what you're applying for meets the standards, you know, literally to the T. So not a lot of planning board decisions um, get challenged and the ones that do normally the developer will win. But the problem is time. We do not have a special land use court in New Jersey. So we're in the general courts with all the other litigation, commercial litigation that's going on. It'll take six months just to get a pretrial conference. At that point, the judge will lay out the discovery process and the trial dates and you know when the interrogs have to be submitted and the position papers have to be done. Six months just to know what the schedule is to get to court. And the schedule typically is gonna take at least another six months. It could easily go more than a year before you even get in front of a judge. Um, you know, who can tie up a piece of property for a year or buy it and hold it for a year without knowing if you're going to be able to build what you want to build? It really complicates the situation. Now, if you're in a zoning board application and you get an approval, now they've given you a use change that is otherwise not permitted, or they've given you some, ex some exceedances to some of the standards, the bulk standards, the height standards, the density, the lot coverage. They've let you do more than the code permits. Now, if you get appealed on a zoning board application, the burden's on the developer. The developer has to, essentially, they have to retry the whole case that you put on in front of the zoning board in front of a judge and prove to him why you deserve that, that there's no, there's no negative impacts to the uh, city and that the positive impacts outweigh the, the, uh, the reasons uh, not to give it to you. Tough, tough road to hoe, um, not impossible. Again, if you do your homework, you can, you can sustain it. Again, it's just time. And who's gonna, who has a year, two years to uh, fight that? Now, if the municipality tells the planning board to deny a, compliant, a fully compliant application, the developer then has to sue the planning board. So now I'm fighting city hall, 
I'm trying to convince them that I did everything properly. You know, they can drag it out forever. Um, they don't really have a budget. It's all coming out of the taxpayers' coffers. It's an unlimited legal defense fund where, where I may have a, a limited legal defense fund. And, and besides that, if you want to do business in that town again, you probably shouldn't fight them. You should probably say, well, you know what? The mayor doesn't like it. The city doesn't like it. I'll just let that one go. And I'll try something different that everybody will be a little more comfortable with. So and this home rule thing exacerbated by the time it takes to litigate a zoning approval or a zoning denial. Yeah, it sounds like there are really some institutional barriers just in the way that the land use um, and approval process is set up. And so if you compound that with the not in my backyard, there are a lot of ways to hold affordable housing developments back from occurring. Sort of given this history, these financing constraints, this institutionalized discrimination, as you mentioned, are there really any practical solutions at this point to move us forward? What would you offer up? Well, I mean, in the article, I talked about a number of things that I would recommend. Um, first of all, I don't understand why, if you have a completely conforming application, you should be subject to challenge. The time of the challenge should be when the ordinance is adopted. That should be when people should show up and make all their arguments and yell and scream at their council people and get them to not vote that through. That's where the fight should be. Unfortunately, when they change an ordinance in a city or a town in New Jersey, not many people pay attention to it because they don't understand the ramifications of it. The ramifications become evident when a developer like me goes ahead and submits an application. Now they know a piece of property where it is. They know what we're intending to build. They know how big, how many units, they know everything about it. And that's usually when they say, oh my God, that's permitted around here? Yeah, well, guess what? Two years ago, they adopted the ordinance permitting it and you didn't show up then. And now you're showing up now that I'm just trying to follow your rules. It's really frustrating. I got to tell you, it's really frustrating. It happens all the time though. We actually make a, a very strong uh, effort to meet with the community and particularly the impacted parts, the people that live right around our project. We will meet with those people multiple times before we even submit an application so that they understand what we're thinking about doing. We'll take input from them. Uh, if there's things that we can give back to the local community as part of our project, we'll try to do that as long as it doesn't really skew the economics. Um, much better to spend a little more and make your neighbors happy than lose the project altogether. A lot of developers don't take the time to do that. They really don't. They're just pushing it through. You know, they're like a bulldozer. And, and those are the developers that really raise the angst of the community and make it much more difficult for guys like me that knows how to work with community groups and stakeholders. Well, isn't, is, is affordable housing, the shortage of affordable housing in the U.S., is that really the problem or is that a symptom? What, what do you think is, yeah, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the, the real issue is poverty. That's the real issue. I, I talk about this toward the end of, of the article um, on affordable housing that I wrote. Um, it's really that education, there's not good education. Typically in the, in, the, in the urban areas where people need a good education the most, the schools are the worst. They don't get the money. Um, you know, the, te the really good teachers are, are scared to work there. They don't think it's safe, so they don't apply for those jobs. So you get, you know, you get under-facilitated school buildings, and then you get you know, not so good, I'll try to be as nice as I can, not so well prepared teachers and not so motivated teachers. 
Um, a lot of the schools are sort of um, areas where nepotism happens, you know, like somebody on the board has a kid that just got out of school with their teaching degree, you know, they get a job as a teacher. You teacher's aid for a year or two and learn the ropes. Mm -hmm. um, so the very places that need the best education will get the worst. So that's a big part of it, education. Job opportunities. You know, in, 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 in cities, there are jobs for low-income people, but they don't pay that much. So sometimes you got to have two of them or even sometimes three jobs to be able to make ends meet. You know, these people that are spending more than 50% of their income on rent, they're probably working at least two jobs just to get to that point. So, you know, we can talk about things like the minimum wage. Uh, I think that we're going to see some progress on that. I think right now, seven fifty dollars an hour is, you know, ridiculous. I don't know who can live on that kind of income. Mm -hmm. So we need to do a lot of introspection in our country right now. Um, I don't have a problem with billionaires. I really don't. Most of the billionaires I read about, they were incredibly innovative and they disrupted their marketplace and created a better product or service than anybody even could imagine before them. Um, so I have no problem with people going right up to the top of the income scale. The real problem is the bottom. And the bottom is where the focus needs to be. So, um, you know, like I said, education, better schooling, better teachers, better, better facilities, higher minimum wage. You know, this is going to address poverty, you know, head on. And poverty is the cause of homelessness. And, 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 you know, people that are living in substandard housing, they can't afford to be in standard housing. Yeah, and the, it's such a multifaceted problem. It's going to take a multifaceted set of solutions, both at the public policy level, the zoning and local levels, as well as um, programs and core you know, investment in our, in our communities in all aspects of it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, George. We're grateful for your insights on affordable housing, an issue that is continuing to have a profound impact on our society and the real estate industry. Join us next time for another discussion of one of the top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier. On behalf of the Counselors of Real Estate, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Top 10 in 20.